All right. Well, hello, voice. Nathan and Aubrey are back from their honeymoon. Welcome back. Newly married. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, so um, if you're new to the church, for whatever reason, online or in person, my name is Taka. I get to uh, be part of the team uh, here at the church. <clears throat> We're in the middle of a series right now uh, that we just started about a year and a half ago uh, called Hello, My Name is Jesus. And the whole idea of the series is to reintroduce us to who Christ is, what he is about, who he talked to, who he didn't talk to, what are, what are the themes that he brings up over and over again. And the reason why is because, well, let's just say over history and even uh, over the past year, uh, which feels like uh, uh, 10 years in the last year, but even over the last years, the actions of Christians has made the character of Jesus blurry. Can you say that? Uh, it's been hard to tell what Jesus cares about uh, by the actions of Christians over time and even in the last year. So we wanted to go through a series, just going through the Gospel of Luke and just talk about what Jesus talked about. And there's going to be some things that we hit on over and over and over again in the series. And even the teaching team has talked about it to where we said, gosh, how are we going to teach this again? Jesus is bringing up the same idea again. And so if you're, if you're seeing us talk about the same topic over and over and over again, it's because Jesus did. And if you see us kind of not talk about some things, uh, it's because Jesus really didn't talk about them. So, uh, yeah, so that's what we're doing right now. We're in the middle of Luke chapter uh, 14. Just want to reiterate what Natalie said as well, uh, is that this is our last few weeks here at this location. And we are so grateful for the family here that's graciously opened up their house, let us take over their home once a week. And then you may not realize this, but actually we store all of our equipment in their house all week. And so there's a whole portion of their house dedicated to store our stuff throughout the week. And so uh, we're so grateful uh, to the family here. And uh, we're couch surfing as a church, right, you know, over the last two and a half years. But it's not a, not a bad way to couch surf. And then, But we are so excited to be back in the city uh, of Tustin starting on Good Friday. Also, a little thing for Good Friday. Uh, some of you guys know that we're good friends with, um, one, of our, one of our values for the church is that we are just one small part of what God is doing around the world, that we're one church. We're not the most important church by any means. And so uh, we're actually partnering with uh, good church friends of ours, uh, New Life Church OC, which used to be Prodigal Church, uh, Matt Hemphill's church. So we're gonna kind of do a Good Friday service uh, together. They launched out of, uh, Calvary in Santa Ana a couple years, two or three years before we launched. And so we're going to do a Good Friday service together uh, with them at Pepper Tree. So we're excited about that. Okay, we have a good amount of stuff to cover. I'm going to obviously talk fast because I'm um, Taka. So, uh, but we, uh, this is one of those times where those of you guys who have kids would understand this, where you feel like you have to have a family meeting. You know what I mean? And you're like, okay, guys, we're going to talk for a little bit about who we are as a family. This is one of those conversations. And so, sorry, not sorry, this may step on some toes, uh, but not intentionally or not like to bring sh uh, shame or guilt or anything, but it's just what Jesus is talking about. So we told you we're not going to ignore anything he did. So chapter uh, 14, uh, verse 25 of Luke. That was a really weird way to say it. Luke 14, 25, <laughs> if you are reading along in your Bibles. Oh, just so you know too, we used to have a TV up here so that you guys can see worship lyrics and uh, like sermon slides and uh, Bible verses and stuff. But usually it's sunny 
And even though we prepared slides, it just looks like a black TV that's off. So we're like, forget it. So anyways, you can look on your own uh, screens. Luke chapter 14, here's what it says. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. So Jesus is having one of these moments where, like you ever seen the movie Rocky? Right? Has a lot of ludicrous moments in this movie, like him like uh, hitting frozen pieces of beef. But there's this one part where he's running in his, you know, gray sweatsuit as one does. And he's running through Philadelphia. And people just start following him. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like a couple kids, I think, are the first ones that just drop whatever they're doing. And they start running with Rocky. By the end of it, like people are leaving their, their businesses, their places of work to go running with Rocky. It's like, it's like a thing. And then by the end of it, he runs up the stairs and yells something at the top of the stairs. We don't know what. And literally the camera pans and there's hundreds of people on the stairs that have just ran with Rocky for who knows how long. I mean, this happens to you, right? When you go running in the neighborhood, it's super annoying because by the end of it, 100 people are following you. So this, it's, it's the most ludicrous moment. And here's what's happening, though, is this idea of crowd behavior, crowd pressure, crowd theory, crowd psychology. And it's this idea that people naturally just do what the people around them are doing without even thinking about it. Let me give you an example. Give her... Uh, there's, there's a group of people that did this kind of uh, experiment, and they put a video about it. And they thought, you know, when people walk into an elevator, the normal thing to do is to turn around and face the door, right? You don't talk. You don't be buddy-buddy. You just, just everyone knows protocol. You get in the elevator, you turn around, you face the door, and you awkwardly are quiet for the next few moments listening to jazz as you get to your Next floor, right? So they tried an experiment of what would happen if we were already in the elevator facing the wrong direction, right? We don't say anything. We just face the wrong direction. So the person comes into the elevator, and there's like four or five people facing away. You just see backs. What would someone do in that situation if there was no explanation? What happened was the first person would walk in there like normal and kind of be like, what the heck are you guys doing? And turn around. Eventually, they would just turn around. It was the weirdest thing. The next person would come in and do the same thing. But they didn't know why they were turned around. And it was just this idea of people just naturally do what people around them are doing. And so this is what's happening to Jesus. There's people that are following him because they're honestly following his teachings. They've given their lives and their livelihoods to follow him. And then there's a bunch of people that are following the first people. All right, if you want to do a social experiment on the other side of, you know, quarantine and stuff is... Go to a crowded city like in L.A. or whatever and then just have five or ten of you just stand in a huddle around anything. A trash can, uh, a stray dog, whatever. Within moments, an entire crowd will just follow because that's what people do. So there were people following Jesus and then there were just a bunch of people in a crowd. And at one point the Bible says that Jesus it says he turned around and said to them, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let me clarify what that is for you. So he turns around and he says, here's what it means to follow me. Here's what it means. And he lays down the cost. He says, if you don't, in comparison, hate your spouse, your mom, your dad, your brother, sister, your family, then you aren't truly my disciple, which sounds like a really harsh thing to say. 
But what he's saying is being a Christ follower isn't about just going to church services. That being a Christ follower is about being all in. Actually, some of you guys that are new to church may wonder, like, why we baptize. Baptism, uh, Paul says, is, is symbolic of dying to Christ and be resurrected into new life. Like, you, kinda, you, can't, you can't kind of get dunked in the water, right? You, you were all the way in. And what it, what the whole idea is that the water touches everything that you're wearing, every part of you. And that's the way we're supposed to be submitted to Christ. So Jesus says that I have to be so clearly the highest priority that every other relationship, every other thing in your life is a distant second by a mile. Let me give you an example. When we first moved into our house, we thought our walls were white. They looked white to us. And then we had to paint, Natalie had to paint, because it's for her, her projects, paint some uh, cabinets that were in our bedroom that were needed to be painted. And so we went to Home Depot, and we're just like, there's like a thousand different white colors, right? So we're like, oh, let's just pick bright white, because our walls are bright white. So we thought. So she got bright white, painted the cabinets, and we're like, hmm, wonder if that's going to dry, dry darker than that. Some of you guys are laughing as you've been in a similar situation. What we found out was what we thought was white was actually a color called Swiss, uh, Swiss coffee, which is actually a great color, to be honest. It's actually a great co color. A lot of, like, places paint in Swiss coffee, like, like a lot of landlords paint their uh, properties in Swiss coffee. It's really a great color. But when you put it next to a true white, it looks almost like a light tan. It's almost like the, the person, the blasphemous person that drinks cream with a little bit of coffee. You know what I'm talking about? It, it looks, it's almost like that kind of color, which makes me and Jesus sad. But, but what happens is when you compare that to white, you realize what color it really is. And what Jesus is saying is some of you, when you compare your devotion to God, to your devotion to other things in your life, it doesn't look like love anymore. That we say we love God, but then compare that to our what we love about our the numbers in our checking account or the job or the person in our lives. And actually, our relationship with God is a second, third, fourth, fifth, distant, bottom of the pack somewhere. See, the whole point is that everything in our life has to submit to God. Our attention, our energy, our time, our homes, our relationships, like everything has to have this posture of, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Jesus, everything is surrendered to you. God, the finances that you put into my hand are surrendered to you. And honestly, some of us, just like they were in Jesus' time, have been following Jesus in a crowd. I remember when I first started going to youth group in high school, um, and in uh, my junior year in high school, I went because it was fun. I went because it was cool. There were like 1,200 kids in the youth group, and there were like laser lights. It was the 90s. It was like laser lights and all this crazy stuff. And I'm like, this is so much fun. My friends were there. There were pretty girls there. The music was cool. It was just all these sorts of fun events and stuff. And so that's why I went to church. It wasn't six months later that I actually made a decision that, you know what, I don't want to be a part of the crowd. Like, I need to make a decision to follow Jesus. So how about you? Have you been following Jesus like a fad? Have you been following Jesus as a member of a crowd? Or have you picked up your own cross and said, I surrender everything 
I mean, really, really surrender everything to God. See, Jesus gave himself completely to the cause of building his kingdom. Jesus gave himself completely to the cause of building the kingdom of God and reconciling people to him. And then he asked us to do the same. In a short time, they would actually see him die a slow death. They would see that he was all in. And when Jesus says, take up your cross, that made no sense to them at this stage. Because the cross is where convicts die. Surely not him. But then they would see it happen just a short time later. And then they would hear this, these moments would echo, oh, you weren't speaking in metaphor. You were saying you were really going to give everything. And you're really saying that we need to take up our cross. We need to be willing to lay everything down for this too. So in light of that, I'm sure they had this, these kind of epiphany kind of moments of, man, are we really willing to follow Jesus that way? In 1859, this is a true story. It's a guy named Charles Blondin. You guys ever heard of this guy? I knew the story, but I never knew there was, I thought it was like a story. I never knew it was real. But in 1859, I got him Charles Blondin put in the uh, Niagara Falls Gazette, the paper over there, obviously, and they said he was in a tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. 1859. So a huge crowd gathered. There was nothing to do uh, back then. You're going to see a guy <laughs> die walking across a tightrope, then that's what happened. 1,100 feet across, 160 feet up in the air. So the day comes, Charles Blondin shows up. He's literally wearing pink tights and a yellow tunic, right? Not a very understated guy. And he did it. He got the crowd hyped up. He walks across a tightrope and then comes back. The crowd goes nuts, right? As you would expect. And then he goes, how many of you think I could do this blindfolded? So the crowd's like, yeah, you can do it. So he did it. He did it blindfolded, came back. And then he goes, how many of you guys think I can push a wheelbarrow? It's kind of a weird thing, but I can push a wheelbarrow across a tightrope and come back. Everyone's like, you can do it, Charles. So he did it. At one point after that, he literally walked halfway across the tightrope, laid down, and like fake like he was taking a nap just to show everyone how easy this was for him. He comes back. And then he says, how many of you guys think I could do this with someone on my back? And everyone's like, yeah. It's a true story. And then he goes, I need a volunteer. And no one. Everyone's like, uh, uh, I mean, I'm good. You know? So wild. What's that have to do with us? We'll say stuff in church like, how many believe in God? Yeah, Amen. How many believe that Jesus came to show us that he loves us? He gave his life for us. Yeah, amen. How many believe that he gave everything for us? Amen. How many believe that Jesus is worth everything? He's worth all of our surrender. He's the first place in our lives. Yeah, amen. Okay. How much time are you setting aside for him? Really? Each week? Well, you know, it's, it's a busy right after you posted on Facebook. Any new TV shows you guys know about? <laughs> How much of the resources that God's given you are you using to build his kingdom? Like, really? Well. How are you loving and forgiving people that differ from you instead of canceling them? How are you 
literally, practically, tangibly helping the poor, the underserved, the needy in your community? How are you helping solve systemic issues in our culture? Not by canceling, not by tweeting, not by putting stuff on your stories, but actually getting out of your house and practically helping people. Well, I mean, it's the same thing, isn't it? And look, this isn't to make you feel bad. That's not my point today. It's to remind you of what he's called us to do. It's to remind us of what it means to follow him. There's a lot of people in the crowd, but there's not a lot of people actually following him. And I actually implore you because there's no better way to live than to live surrendered to God. There's no better way to live than to relinquish the guilt that we carry, the shame that we carry, the, the regrets that eat away at our soul. There's, there's no better way to live than to give up the control. Or I even say not even the control, the, the illusion of control we have. The need for control as if we actually could. A lot of what we consider control is like, like my, uh, there's like these games where we used to play growing up to where like I would have the steering wheel and then there'd be like a kitty version next to me where like one of the girls would think she's controlling the car, but she's really not doing anything, right? That's what a lot of us think that we're doing in life. We're controlling, but you're, it's an illusion. It's an illusion. There's so much that we cannot control. And the best way to live is to give that control up to God. There's no better way to live than at the end of your life, people say that you gave your, your time, your talents, the money that God's put into your hand to build something far bigger than yourself. There's no better way to live than to help those in need, to spread the gospel, to create a, a, create a place where people can be reconnected with God. There's no better way to live. And the thing I love about Jesus is he doesn't want you to make a, a decision in a flurry of emotion. Like there's a reason why we're saying this and we don't, we don't have like a sad story to bring you to an emotional moment while the team is playing in a minor key behind me to work up the emotions, the lights dim in a certain way, to make you feel a certain way, to get you to, to a certain point to make a decision. Jesus doesn't do that because Jesus wants us to think it through. And the right brain side of me loves this. Jesus wants us to weigh the cost, to really consider it and then say, are you willing to do this? Like, really? And so he goes on, he gives two examples to illustrate his point. He says in verse uh, 14, uh, or sorry, verse 28, he says, oh, where'd it go? He says, but don't begin until you count the cost. Don't begin until you count the cost. So he's like, we're not having signups right now. We want you to think about this. Don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money. And then everyone would laugh at you. That's kind of sticking it to them while they're down. Then everyone would laugh at you, Jesus says. They would say, there's a person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. In our old hometown, there was a church, a uh, great church on the other side of town. A lot of my friends went to it. And they started a building project, millions of dollars. And they didn't get enough money in to start the project. But they started the project anyway because they believed that God would provide the finances. 
Well, 2008 happened, uh, and the money didn't come in. And actually, there were some scandals around how they spent the money, so people left the church to add injury to insult. And what happened was they only built the foundation and some of the shell and then stopped. To this day, it's just a foundation and a shell over a decade later. It's on a major road. They actually built this in front of their main church, so it would be right next to the road. And now it's just on display, like Jesus is talking about, of scandal and poor planning and a bunch of financial stuff going on. That's been a lighthouse for me and my leadership, honestly. Which is why we as a church, we've, been, we've never leveraged debt. Maybe one day, if God willing, we'll, we'll have a building, but we've never leveraged debt to launch the church, even though multiple churches and organizations have graciously and generously offered to loan us money to launch the church to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we've turned them down. Thanks, but no thanks. Because we didn't want to leverage debt because of stories like this, what Jesus talked about. And then, you know, French churches that have made some poor decisions would tell us, don't do what we did. But Jesus isn't talking about real estate, is he? What's Jesus talking about? I think what Jesus is saying as, we, in, in the, as it relates to discipleship is he's saying, look, guys, groundbreaking is exciting. Get your little white construction hat. You get your little gold-plated mini shovel. You take the picture. Right? Laying the foundation is exciting. Any of you guys that started like re rehab projects on your house, getting started is really exciting. But then after a while, it just looks like problem solving. And after a while, it just looks like another run to Home Depot. It looks like a whole lot of hard work and dirty fingernails and sacrifice. It looks like I'm super tired and stressed out, but I got to keep working. And what Jesus is saying is, do you have commitment for that stage? Do you have commitment for when the feelings and the hype and the emotion and the honeymoon stage is gone? Do you still have commitment for that stage? Or when the feelings go away, does your obedience go away too? When the emotions are no longer there, do the good decisions go away too? Actually, it makes me think about a conversation Aiden and I had this week. We're hanging out, running an errand. Aiden is our youth intern. And we're talking about leadership and and one of the things we were talking about was that some people have to feel before they act. Right? They, want to, they need to feel like working out. They need to feel like giving. Or else they won't do it. But the ones that make a difference, the ones that actually make an impact in the world, are the individuals who have the maturity to act correctly whether they feel like it or not. See, can I be totally honest? Some of us have been stuck in this foundation stage with our faith for years, maybe decades. And here's why. Because when we get excited or when it hits the fan in our life and we're motivated, oh, dear God, if you get me out of this, I'll worship you forever. Then the emotions of the moment cause us to rededicate our life to the Lord. But when the emotions fade, when it's just a foundation that's laid, and now it looks like a whole lot of hard work and obedience and sacrifice, we stop. And then we later come back when we have the emotions again. And we never outgrow this foundation toddler stage of our faith. This is what Jesus is talking about. Weigh the cost. And then he goes on to a, a crazy part of what he talks about. He says, he says in verse 31, or... 
what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him. If he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. What the heck is going on here? Let me give you a little backstory because I think what's happening here gets lost on us as we read this 2,000 years later on the other side of the planet. The region that he's in is ruled by a guy named Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great. Right? Herod the Great was a king, a monarch. When Herod the Great died, he was not a great dude. But when he died, he had a bunch of sons. I think like 43 kids. He had a bunch of sons, a few that wanted to have power. So Rome didn't create another monarch out of one of his sons. What he did was they, Rome divided the kingdom and made little stations for some of Herod's kids. So Herod Antipas had one part. Archelaus had another part. Philip had another part and others, right? So Herod Antipas is the region where Jesus is doing ministry. He's the ruler. And let me tell you a little about Herod Antipas. Really weird guy, just like his dad was. His first marriage was to, uh, to the daughter of the king of Nabatea, which is the nearest neighbor to his area of rule, but also his most dangerous enemy, a powerful enemy. So he decided... I'm going to marry his daughter so we can have peace. So he does it. He doesn't love her. It's purely political. Then he has a problem. He falls in love with another girl called Herodias. Beautiful name. But he marries, he falls in love with a girl named Herodias. Problem with Herodias is one, he's already married. Remember? King of Nebadia's daughter. Also, two, she's also married. Okay? She's married to his half-brother, Philip. It's really complicated. The other problem is that Herodias is actually a daughter to one of Herod Antipas's half-brothers. Remember, because his dad had 43 kids with 10 or 11 wives. Okay, so she's married. She's also his daughter of his half-brother. It gets kind of confusing. So this is a true story. If he marries Herodias, she will be his wife, his niece, and his sister-in-law. Okay, this is true. If they have kids together, which they eventually do, she will be their mother, aunt, and their cousin. Okay, this is a true story. It's like a bad redneck joke. So Herodias says, okay, uh, I'll marry you, but you have to divorce uh, your first wife because she's a woman of principle. So, So Herod Antipas obviously says no because that would be wrong and it'd be unwise because the king of Nebadia is going to demolish me. He just goes, okay. So he divorces the little girl, the daughter of his most prominent enemy. So what happens? Daughter goes home. Daddy declares war. Dad sends 20,000 soldiers to march against Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas sends everything he has. 10,000 men gets demolished. I mean, gets absolutely humiliated. It would have been all over, you know, the news on, on YouTube if they had that that day. 
So when Jesus is saying, oh, I got another one for you guys, they know what he's talking about. He's not talking in metaphor. And here's the thing. They wouldn't be laughing at this one. As Jesus is going, oh, I got another one. Who would march 10,000 against 20,000? He'd at least send a delegation for peace, right? And they'd be like, bro, you're going to die. You're going to die. Remember a few weeks when, when Natalie talked about um, when Jesus is walking to Jerusalem and Pharisees come out to him and say, you got to get out of here. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. It's because of moments like this. Herod Antipas is the guy that captured John the Baptist for speaking out against him. Remember this? And then he chops his head off. Right? Not a real, like, stable guy. You don't talk about Herod Antipas and live for very long. But Jesus lived as if there was another kingdom that he belonged to. Jesus lived as if the kingdom on this earth was ruled by people that have no power over him. As if there was another kingdom that he was anchored to, another kingdom that he was a, a part of that was more real and more important than anyone could grasp or see. And that perspective gave him unbelievable courage. His entire being was anchored in that reality. That he was all in. His actual response to Herod, the, the Pharisees warning him was, of course, a prophet can't die outside of Jerusalem. He knew what he was walking into. And this is what he calls his followers to do. He keeps on coming back to this idea that you have to be all in. Take up your cross as you're about to see me do. And then he keeps on asking them, are you living like this? Like really? Not just saying amen to it. Not just Instagramming the Bible verse, but are you actually living like this? And then he lands the sermon with this next verse. He says, salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. So he says, when salt isn't salty, what good is it? What he's saying is, if a disciple isn't fully devoted, what's the point? If a Christ follower isn't actually following Christ, why bother? And then he ends with this idea. He says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And in that time, what that is saying is, if you hear nothing else, guys, hear this. This is the whole kitten caboodle. This is the whole shebang. This is it. If you hear nothing else, hear this. And what Jesus isn't doing is he's not asking for attendees. He's not asking for people to follow a social media account. He's saying, who's in? Long after it's fun, long after it's exciting, long after the feelings go away, the hype goes away, who's in? When it hurts, when it goes against what we want to do in the moment, when it means high sacrifice, who's in? Who's willing to say yes to God regardless of what he says? Who's willing to have the posture of life that says, God, just tell me what you want me to do. The answer is already yes. 
That's what it means to follow. Is that you today? Like really, is that you today? And if it's not, why not? I'm encouraging you, challenging you, double dog daring you to fully surrender to God. And then watch him change lives through you. Watch him build his kingdom through you. Watch him reconcile people to him through you. What else is worth giving our lives for? But man, I want to challenge you not just to call yourself a Christian and just attend services. You're missing so much. Again, not because God wants anything from you. It's because God wants something for you. And he can do, God can do so much more through your surrender than you could ever do through your control. God can do so much more through your surrender than you could ever do through your control. So surrender. Say, God, the, the money I have is yours. Build your kingdom with it. The time I have, the talents you've given me, the, the unique things that I'm just naturally good at, I give them to you. Would you use them to build your kingdom? The time I have on this earth, the minutes, hours, days, weeks, years, who knows how long we have on this earth, I give them to you. God, use them to build your kingdom. This is not about me. I'm fully surrendered. And I think when he does, or when we do that, God can bless a nation. And people can see him more clearly. Let's pray. God, I just, God, I pray for no condemnation. I pray for no guilt, God. That is not the heart of today. God, I pray that would you compel us, would you draw us like a magnet to a deeper, true relationship with you. God, whatever walls that we've put up, whatever misconceptions, whatever we, whatever we think following you is, God, would you clarify what that really is? That it's not about rules and regulation, but it's our relationship and hope and making a difference. God, all of us are yearning to make a difference in this world, to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And God, would you help us to see that that's found in you? Would you use us as a church family to change lives all over Orange County and through the internet and around the world? God, would you use us to reconcile people to you, the people that are literally right now praying, God, are you real? Are there any real Christians? God, I pray, would you use us to answer their prayers? Would you use us to represent you well? Not so we can build a brand, but so that people can find you. And that is worth giving our full lives for. You did it. We want to do it too. You have all of us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.